Uh, last week, uh, Pastor Tom started off our new focus for the next number of weeks on the topic of emotional health. It is an area that I am absolutely horrible at, all right? I am not an expert. I am very unfamiliar with this whole area. But as I get a little bit older, okay, I can see um, the state of, of, of the church, not just our church, but churches in general. I can see the, the state of um, Christians in general. I can see the state of my own heart as well, uh, that this has been an area that is poorly understood and poorly applied to life, and it is essential. It's critical. And yet we, especially churches, especially Christians, we don't really know that much about this area. And it's kind of a scary um, part of life to enter into. All right? Uh, There's this not-so-subtle pressure in Christianity to look really good on the outside while being a complete mess on the inside. And what often happens is when we come to faith in Jesus and we join the church, little more than just an adoption of a new worldview and an external change of behavior happens. We kind of get stuck at that point. You know, for decades, the markers of spiritual maturity or discipleship have been don't drink or swear or smoke, don't sleep around, Attend church regularly, give a tithe, raise your hands in worship, use lots of Christian lingo, all right? And uh, what else? Uh, Volunteer somewhere. And if you're compliant in all of those areas, then you must be an incredibly mature Christian. And therefore, a smashing success by God's standards. Meanwhile, our spouse, our family, our friends, they know the real story, and they get left in the dust. And we become a Christian by all the external measurements, but on the inside and in our private life, maybe not so much. We may be kind to a stranger and yet are a jerk to our spouse, We may volunteer and give, but maybe with a bit of resentment or obligation or uh, some kind of selfish expectation thrown in, not freely or, or, or cheerfully. We might lift our hands in worship, but then cringe and slander and critique the band every time they make a mistake or at lunch or I didn't like that song or whatever it might be, you know, after the service or even during the service. And on and on and on it goes. The distance between the outside and the inside. The great disconnect between genuine love for God, for one another, and for self. And it's tempting, based on external perspectives and even history of of Christians in the church, it's tempting to believe that Jesus is simply in the business of washing the outside of the cup But Jesus isn't really interested in getting into the mess that is on the inside of the cup. All right? It's tempting to believe that. But nothing could be further from the truth. 
In fact, we read in Matthew 23 Jesus' words to God followers that thought this was the case. He said this to them, You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Now, the true marker of spiritual maturity isn't only religious action, but it's rather the quality and the consistency of the love that we have for God, one another, and ourselves. That's the, the true marker of spiritual maturity. God's brand of truth and love experienced in us, through us, and outside of us. Okay? Uh, We have to allow his love and his truth to touch us on the inside where we don't want him to go, to uh, heal us, to speak his truth, and to speak his love to the ugliest and most broken parts of who we are as human beings. And as he does that, he begins to heal and to touch and to change us from the inside out. And we bleed less, not only in our own lives, but bleed less on others as well. And we shorten the distance between our neighbor's admiration for Jesus and our neighbor's disdain for the church. You've seen that on Facebook, haven't you? People love Jesus. That guy seemed really cool. This church, not so much. There's a significant distance there. And that distance is caused by this very topic that we're covering. By the distance of Jesus being allowed to change us truly from the inside out. And so over these next number of weeks, we'll continue to lay the theological and practical foundation for how we are to think about all of this. So that hopefully we'll be more open to this kind of change in our thinking and in our living. This time next year, actually, we'll be offering an eight-week discipleship course in emotional health. And uh, our pastors and uh, ministry leaders, we're actually going through it right now. Uh, and uh, we're, to, one, to, to be familiar with the content, but, but two, to really catch up in our own maturity and our own um, um, discipleship journey as well. And so this, it'll be offered uh, this time next year, so you can um, hold on to that thought. Um, this series in particular at this time is really meant to be both a primer uh, or an invitation to begin peeling back the layers of ignorance or of hard-heartedness uh, or of just, you know, um, just complete unawareness of the subject and begin venturing out into this area that many of us, quite frankly, don't like or even ignore altogether. Uh, Today, we're going to consider our possible lack of self-awareness or self-knowledge. St. Augustine, he once wrote this. He said, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? And so our flow of thought today, the logic that we are going to use today is like this. First, to know God better, we must know thyself. Second, one of the ways to know thyself, a critical way, component of to to knowing thyself, is to be honest with our feelings. I don't like that word. I know a lot of you don't either. Third, we often dismiss our feelings due to poor theology and or busyness. Okay, so that's kind of the flow of thought. First, to know God better, we must know thyself. 
like any relationship, but ours and, and, and our relationship with God included, if we don't present the real version of ourself to the other person, we are in for a superficial relationship where both parties get, rip, get ripped off of the real deal. If we don't share how we are feeling, we aren't presenting the real us. And hopefully the logic behind that is self-explanatory and understandable. I think we can all get our heads wrapped around that. Which leads us to the second thought, B. Uh, one of the ways to know thyself is to be honest with our feelings. This is the first step in being honest with others, namely God, about how we feel, is that we must first be honest with ourselves about how we're truly feeling. Because our feelings make up a huge part of who we are. If we were to try to discover who we are and or relate to others with no emotions or communication about how we feel, we wouldn't be human. We wouldn't and couldn't be who God made us to be. We would be a dry, boring, personality-less drone if we ignored that component of who we are. Which brings us to the third thought that we'll spend our time here today unpacking, and that is this. We often dismiss feelings due to poor theology and or busyness. There are two extremes people often believe about our feelings. And both are unbiblical, both are poor theology, okay? On one extreme, we are led by our feelings. That is the, you know, what's in your gut? That kind of ideology or worldview. How do you feel about it? Because if you follow your feelings, you can't go wrong. That's on one unhealthy, unbiblical extreme. It's if it feels good, then do it. It must be right, okay? On the other extreme... Uh, it's mostly expressed in uh, traditional or conservative Christian masculinity. And it kind of sounds like a caveman, right? It's like, me a man, me have no feelings, me only use righteous anger. You know, that kind of an idea. That's, thank you, okay? That's, that's kind of on the other unhealthy extreme, all right? On one side, we're led by our every whim, led by the flesh. We're maybe known by others to just fly off the ha handle, to be completely unchecked in how we live life. And then on the other side, we, we push down, we ignore, we dismiss, we numb our feelings, or we find a way to distract ourselves from what we're feeling, okay? And in Christian settings, this is... <laughs> I, I love, I'm a people watcher. I, I love observing the church, especially. Because it, I see it in myself, by the way. It, it's not a, a judgment of, on you, and I'm saying I've got this figured out. Not, not a, at all. But in, in Christian settings, the way that this kind of manifests on, on these different extremes is, you know, on one hand, we, we, we check our brain at the door, and we just become psycho-charismatics, charismaniacs that are just led by what we feel, right? We're in tune with the Spirit, and our brain and our theology and our love for neighbor is left at the door. Okay, that's one unhealthy extreme, or, or it also manifests maybe like we raise our hands in worship, and then we're a jerk to our family. Like that, that's, 
an unhealthy, unbiblical extreme. On the, on the other hand, in Christian settings, we say that if you're really spiritual, uh, then you wouldn't be so upset right now, that kind of a thing. And it's like, good Christian style, 24-7. We're just always happy people. Happy, 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 because Jesus is on the throne. You know, that kind of a thing. That's the other unhealthy extreme. And that's where a lot of, to be quite frankly, spiritual abuse takes place. Because we belittle and we push people down that are struggling with where they're at and the circumstances that are at in their life. And we over-spiritualize it in this unhealthy unbiblical way. It's, it's bad theology. So both extremes, like I said, are, are, they're neither biblical nor are they healthy, okay? And I don't know why exactly, but we humans, especially Christians, we love to suppress our feelings, especially certain ones like sadness, anger, fear, shame. And even if we're really honest, the, the, more, the more pleasant or good ones like joy, or love. We like to suppress those as well. Because in Christian circles, we sometimes think like having too much joy might be sinful. Having so much love in my heart might be sinful. It feels so good. It, it can't be right because God's always like, no, no, no. You know, a kind of a thing. For me, this might sound sick to you, but I am happiest when I'm mowing the lawn. Some of you might be at your worst when you're mowing along. Honestly, sincerely, I am, I've, I've, I've lived a lot of life. I've experienced a lot of things. I am happiest when I am mowing the lawn. But you know what? I feel so guilty for being that happy when I'm mowing the lawn. Because the two thoughts that always come across my mind are, one, um, there's, more, there's better uses for my time right now. So I feel guilty for feeling happy about mowing the lawn because they're, they're, you know, people are going to hell and there's people that are overdosing on the streets and here I am having a great time mowing my lawn. And I feel guilty about that. Or I feel guilty about being happy because it's like, uh, on the other hand, it's like, um, you know, there's other people that are going through a really hard time right now and, and, and is it right that I feel happy when I, I know someone else in the church or a friend or a family member is just really struggling today? Can I, can I feel joy even in the midst of me mowing the lawn? Like, is that okay? Uh, or I remember uh, about four years ago, um, I was um, really angry, okay? In an angry chapter season of life. And it all stemmed from a false expectation that I had of God, that I somehow arbitrarily believed or decided that after five years, uh, after my wife had passed, that after five years, that life would just be much easier. And I woke up five years in to her passing, and life wasn't easier. And I was angry. I was angry at God, and I was angry at others. And uh, I remember feeling guilty about feeling angry, uh, and that made me more angry, uh, as crazy as that might sound. And as a man and as a Christian, I felt it was wrong to be angry, and I shoved it down and shoved it down and shoved it down until I couldn't shove it down 
anymore. And I went and I saw a Christian counselor. And he helped me unpack that anger and unpack the lie or the wound or the false expectation that I had that was causing that. And uh, in, in a very strange yet sensical way, addressing my anger instead of ignoring it with the help of others and bringing it before God actually brought me to a healthier, stronger place than I was at before. You see, I had poor theology on feelings. So what's good theology for our emotions? First is God has feelings. Our God has feelings. He's an emotional God. He's an emotional being. Second, we are made in his image and likeness. And third, Jesus is our model for emotional health. That's good theology on feelings, okay? First, God has feelings. Now, we don't have time to go over all the scriptures because there's just simply way too many. But a quick survey of through Genesis all the way through Revelation, we see that our God does in fact have feelings. He has delight, regret, he gets deeply troubled, he gets angry, he gets jealous. Isaiah 42, 14 was a new one to me. Uh, it says this, but now like a woman in childbirth, this is God, okay? But now like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp, and I pant. That's our God, having those feelings and those emotions. And you continue to read scripture, and of course, uh, the overwhelming emotion of God is of love and of fondness and kindness towards this world, towards you and towards me. And it is, his compassion is overflowing, a uh, heart of compassion. And, and it's probably the reason that he is oftentimes also filled with sorrow or he is troubled by what's going on. And then there are times where he is just full of the deep and incredible joy. That's our God. That's good theology to understand that. That's who our God is. If God doesn't ignore his emotions, why should you? Second, we are made in his image and likeness. We are made to be like him. All of our emotions come from him. They are the vehicle by which we not only know ourselves and one another, but also God. They help us identify and connect with God, as well as to reveal more of ourself to him, for him to answer back to us about what we're feeling and what we're going through. You know, to deny our emotions is to deny what it means to be human. It is to reject how God made us, and in doing so, it is to actually rebel against him and his will for our lives. Hmm. When we ignore our feelings, we lose out on deep union with God and others. And as a result, he is less glorified in us as his creation and as his children. So what are we to do? just live by our every feeling or every whim or emotion? No. If God did that, we wouldn't be here today. <laughs> so that brings us to the third theological point that we need to adopt and adapt to. 
And that is that Jesus is our model for emotional health. He strikes the right balance. He's a healthy human model who has lived in this world and knows what it's like to be human with all the crud that goes on in our families and in our workplace and in the world and in the church or the religious institutions. He knows what it's like to be human in all of those environments. Jesus is our prime example. And a quick survey of his life reveals that Jesus was in touch with his feelings. In fact, we're going to read a scripture in a moment where I'm like, a little too in touch, Jesus. And how he interacted with his feelings is a model for us. We read in scripture, I mean, this old Sunday school joke, the easiest verse in the Bible to memorize, Jesus wept, right? Jesus cried. He was a man, a strong man, a righteous man, and he cried. Jesus got angry. We covered that a few weeks ago. Remember the turning over of the tables? Remember the way in which the, the people of God were making the man with the withered hand a few months ago feel? He got distressed. He knew joy. He knew grief. He knew pain and suffering and agony and angst. He knew frustration with those that were close to you and they've let you down. Almost all of his stories with him and the disciples are like, you idiots, the disciples are just clueless people. And it's like, Jesus, this is what I got to work with, God? You know, kind of a thing. Like, they're just, they, they let him down. They, they were the, the friends and the family that were just not very helpful, <laughs> you know? I know some of you are like, oh, if I could trade spouses or if I could trade children, sign me up. And yet Jesus is here. He shows us, he models for us what it's like to, to be faithful, to be balanced, and to be healthy, and to wrestle with those dynamics in life. He even knew what it was like to be betrayed. Like have somebody that you poured your blood, sweat, and tears into, your life into, and have them betray you, stab you in the back, literally sell you to death. He knows what it's like to feel that. To walk through that. Isn't that incredible? Consider Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane just before he would be arrested, tried, and beaten, and hung on a cross. He knew what was coming, and look what he felt. Verse, uh, Matthew chapter 26 says this, verses 36 through 38. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. It's like you could see his mood turning, and if I was Peter there, I'd be like, I'm out of here. This is too much emotions for me, all right? And then he said to them, it's even worse. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here. And keep watch with me. As a man and as a Christian, I get embarrassed by Jesus's lack, my, my false perceived lack of strength in Jesus in this moment. His drama, his weakness, 
It's like he's being a drama queen, like, I need my support kind of a thing. You know, that kind of an idea, like, if a man is to act like that today, would other men know how to respond to that? And then I realized what he was doing, what he was going through. I mean, we don't, we don't won't ever really fully understand what he was truly going through, the depth of what he knew was about to happen and the, the great injustice that he was about to face and to take on. But you realize what he was doing, what he was going through, and then you see, begin to see the strength that he had, both in his vulnerability and in his obedience. Incredible. And then I realize, oh, that's what a Christian is to look like. That's what a healthy human is to look like. That's what a man is to look like. Maybe the world, maybe Christianity, and especially Christianity, Christian masculinity, has it wrong. Maybe my theology is wrong. And right now, those of us that are prone to dismiss and to push down our feelings, those of us, myself included, who rarely open up, are probably beginning to feel a little uncomfortable with all of this. For Christ's example changes how men and women are to do marriage, family, and friendship. How we're to do life. How we do feelings. Vulnerable, yet obedient. And for those of us who give in to our emotions, maybe we're more prone to the other extreme, where our emotions often get the best of us, or we are actually led by our emotions, we too must see in Christ that he put his obedience to the Father over indulging or being led by his feelings. He was honest with his feelings. He didn't ignore them. But he brought them up to his community and he brought them to his Father in heaven in prayer. And that journey through his emotional honesty led him to perhaps the most powerful words ever lived because they were real and they were honest right to the core of who Jesus was, not only as God but also as human. When he said these words in verse 39, Yet not as I will, but as you will. Incredible. That's the balance right there, by the way. Uh, okay, we've got, we've got a boogie. All right. Uh, the second obstacle to knowing thyself through engaging in our feelings, okay, is our busyness. One of my favorite TV shows is the hit series Alone. Uh, it's got a new season coming out next week. Pretty excited about it. In this show, the contestants, they get dropped off by themselves in a, a remote, rugged part of uh, the wilderness in the world, okay, with very limited supplies, and they have to survive by themselves. Not even a camera person there, okay, by themselves. They're completely alone. Uh, until the last one um, to, to tap out, or the last one standing, uh, surviving, wins the game, wins the cash prize. And, and all the contestants are, for the most part, usually 80, 90% of them, okay, they're very skilled in survival skills. 
they know how to hunt, they know how to fish, they know how to start a fire from a flintstone. Like they just, they know all that stuff and they've been doing it for decades, most of them, okay? And all those things are essential to winning the show. The ones that don't know how to do that, they, they tap out very quickly. But the greatest survival skill and, and, and now a number of seasons of this show uh, being run, this experience being tested, is truly the greatest skill is their ability to be alone for long periods of time. Most of the people on the show, while they've done lots of like camping, it's usually with other people. Or if it's by themselves, it's like for one or two nights, maybe a week at the most. And what gets to them quickest is the solitude, is the stillness and the quietness of just being by themselves day after day, night after night. And it gets to them. Contestants quickly realize how the noise and the busyness of their normal life drowns out the reality of who they are and what they are truly feeling about themselves and about life. And it reveals to us this reality is that we use busyness to avoid what's really going on. We use the noise of the world to drown out both God's voice and our own voice. To the point that we can go for decades and some people even go for life. I, I've been with people the last week of their life and they've unburdened things that they've been holding on to for their whole life. Life, whole life they've gone through like that. Never being honest with themselves and therefore never being able to be honest with those around them, let alone with God. And in this show, the minute that it gets quiet and slow enough to hear those voices and to not have those distractions, things get really awkward, really awkward. Thoughts and feelings that they've suppressed for decades come to the surface. And most people tap out of the show because they don't want to or can't deal with whatever comes up. It's too much for them to handle, for them to bear. And so they'd rather tap out and go back to the noise and the distraction of a busy life than deal with it. Contestants will talk about how they go for whole days and nights that they are consumed with regrets over how they've treated others, how they've been lying to themselves about their job or about their spouse or about why they didn't do this decision or did do this decision. Childhood memories that they hadn't even thought of for decades come back to them in the night with crystal clarity. And they begin to get really emotional to the point that the greatest threat to them winning the game isn't their hunting skills, but is in fact their emotional health. And the ones that win the show, they are the ones that are most comfortable in their own skin. They've been alone long enough or frequently enough that they are comfortable with themselves. They know who they are. They are at peace with who they are and with how they've lived through their successes and their failures. They've wrestled with their demons. They've died to self. They know their limits. They know who they are. They are at peace with God, with one another, and themselves. 
You see, one of the great sins of our culture and of our time is busyness. And the way that busyness silences the inner witness of our emotions and God's voice who wants to speak his truth and his love into those emotions. And while I have much to say on this topic, I will simply remind us of the importance of both silence and solitude. These are underutilized and often forgotten practices that are essential to what it means for us to become healthy humans, for us to, to become healthy before God and before one another. Because we need time and we need space to shut up for long enough, to shut the world out for long enough, to actually allow that which we have been suppressing, ignoring, or distracting or numbing with any number of things or ways to actually begin to come to the surface and begin to deal with it in community and before God. If Jesus often withdrew to remote places to be silent and, silent and still before his Father, ought not we? When was the last time that you purposely practiced withdrawing to be silent and still and alone? Like eating well, exercising, reading your Bible, ought it not to be a regular discipline in our pursuit of becoming more like Jesus? So in closing, finally, okay. What is God speaking to you today? Might he be asking you to regularly withdraw to practice silence and solitude? Might he be asking you to cultivate deeper, more honest relationships with others? I hope some of our wives are going to be pleasantly surprised this week by a husband that actually verbally expresses, articulately expresses, and that might be too much, verbally expresses how he's truly feeling. And not just the good emotions or the more positive ones, like I'm feeling great today, you know? But those inner parts of your life where it's like you're actually scared about something. Or you feel like a failure. Or you've been hanging on to some resentment or bitterness that seems silly and not very strong of me to say. But whatever it might be, to actually begin cultivating a life of masculinity that actually looks more like Jesus and how he did emotions than how our world says emotions are to be dealt with. Third, might he be asking you to step into uncharted territory, the example I just gave you. When your feelings reveal something that you've been suppressing, lean into it. Have that dialogue with God. Take that next step of action. Four, when your feelings do come to the surface and you're more the kind of person that just flies off the handle or is led in life by your emotions, balance it with obedience. Vulnerability, bring it up. Don't suppress it, but be vulnerable. But then be subject to the master, to your Father in heaven, 
who will guide you in a way that actually brings about greater health and a greater product and greater fruitfulness if you if you act out and walk through your emotions sub subject or submitted to him versus just being led by how you normally do things. This is what I do and I'm angry. This is what I do and I'm upset. Bring it to others and bring it to God. And lastly, might he be asking us to enter into a whole new kind of prayer life? The kind where you're more honest and relational than you've ever been with God, rather than it just being, Lord, help me with this task, you know, remove this annoying person from my life, or whatever your prayer list might be. More than that, for it actually to be a, a relationship where you actually open up to God honestly about how you feel about stuff and actually talk to him and then, and then listen for his response. He is big enough and he is loving enough to, to handle all of who you are. And you read the book of Psalms and you find out very quickly through the life and the experience and the witness of David that God has room for every emotion from exhilaration and joy and, you know, top of the world, happiness and love, all the way to hatred. You read Psalms where uh, David is asking God to smash his enemy's kids against the rocks. Read it. It's in the Bible. That's how much he hated his enemies, that he wanted his enemy's kids to be thrown and smashed against the rocks. That's how big our God is. He can handle every emotion that you have about whatever situation you're facing. Bring it to him. And the Psalms is such a good model for that because David often starts out in a place of self-pity, in a place of being a drama queen or whatever you might falsely label it or whatever. And as he deals with it and he vents and he pours himself out to God, you begin to see God whisper and speak, well, what about this? And what about this? And have I not done this? And what about where they've been from? Or whatever it might be. And all of a sudden, you see the, the change of David's Psalms, of his prayer life, shift from pity parties and anger and petty little things. Or maybe it's not even petty, but sometimes it was for David, at least from my perspective. Uh, moved to this place of great surrender and of great joy, and of great peace before God. What a model for us. Let's pray. All right, the band can come on up. We are going to close our time in prayer and in song, and uh, let's open our hearts in prayer now. Lord, we thank you for uh, your model of what it means to be human, and what it means to be uh, a human that has emotions just like you have uh, emotions. And I pray that whatever... Uh, whatever you're speaking to us personally out of this, that um, there'd be so much more than just an impression or just words or, yeah, I should probably do that to, to really a decision of, of the will to say, no, I am going to do that and uh, to be obedient uh, to uh, what you're speaking and what you're leading us in. Lord, I pray that you would help us personally and collectively as a church. Be not afraid of this subject or this territory but to be strong like Jesus, you were strong in the garden and to enter it into it with vulnerability and obedience. And I pray 
that the net result for our church and for our homes is that we would be a bunch of people that look way more like Jesus than the world and that our neighbors would actually see something in us, in our public and in our private life that says, I want that, I need that, I was made for that. And they'd be drawn to you through your love and truth being experienced and lived through us. Help us today, help us this week, we pray.